generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a GZZ podcast about race and faith from the perspective of a black girl, an Asian guy, and a white guy too. I'm Andrew. I'm Asian. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm Bethany. I'm black. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Chris. I'm white. And I use he, him pronouns. We like to start our podcast by talking about stuff that we wish we had mentioned or stuff we want to correct from our previous episodes. Um, Our previous episode was actually our live episode, which was a ton of fun. But uh, the correction that I wanted to make was when I said that my parents made fried rice with hot dogs because they couldn't find Chinese sausages in Queens. Knowing Queens, even Queens in the 80s, probably not true. They probably could find Chinese sausages because Queens is, is, the, is the motherland of all immigrants. Um, but they definitely could not find Chinese sausages when they moved to Cleveland. So that's my correction. <laughs> and my correction is in reference to some language that we use to describe our pastor, Johnny. I oftentimes refer to him as our quote unquote favorite Egyptian. And I use that phrase in a kind of tongue in cheek way because Johnny's actually the only Egyptian that I know. So I find it funny to label him my favorite um, because of the irony that like he is the only Egyptian person that I know. Um, But recently Johnny pointed out in in our um, group chat a little bit of tension that he was feeling about it. And it really was a good check for me that even though I exist in many intersections of marginalization as a Black woman, um, that I cannot assume familiarities with another person of color. So we may stop referring to Johnny as our favorite Egyptian because it can be a little tokeny. Yeah. And the way that we had this conversation was pretty good. He didn't just, mm-hmm. he didn't say like, stop doing it. It offends me or anything. He was like, this makes me feel a little weird. Why do you think that is? And we had a really interesting conversation about why it might be tokenizing and how it might make somebody feel. And I know that like, for me, if I'm in an environment where I'm like the only East Asian person and someone keeps highlighting that fact, it does feel weird. Mm-hmm. So I totally get where Johnny's coming from. Yeah, Absolutely. If you listen to our previous live episode, you'll know that we have Stay Black Little Mermaid t-shirts now. Uh, am I ruining the, the intro to this? Bethany, why don't you tell us about them? Um, yeah, we got a bunch of t-shirts in that say Stay Black Little Mermaid. So if you're in the Philadelphia area and you're listening to the podcast and you're interested in getting a t-shirt um, that helps us do the work that we're doing as a team in our church and also just like advertising our really cool podcast, please reach out to us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com to get your very own Stay Black Little Mermaid t-shirt. In addition to taking orders for t-shirts in our email address, we also get comments and questions from people listening. Um, Thanks for all those and keep them rolling in. But one listener said, I have a question about the intersectionality of uh, Black, Indigenous, POC, and queer identities. How do conversations about sexuality and gender identity differ in Black, Indigenous, POC spaces compared to predominantly white spaces. So this person goes on to talk about different intersectionalities and different um, difficulties. The thing that I have to say about this is that these are all great questions. And since none of us can speak specifically to those experiences, what we want to do is wait until we can get somebody on this podcast who actually uh, can speak 
from a black, indigenous, POC, queer perspective. That will be a future conversation that we're looking forward to have. Uh, but these are great questions and uh, keep them coming. Uh, this podcast may be a week off of our normal schedule. And the reason that it's a week off of our normal schedule is that we actually recorded a whole episode. That wasn't very good. I thought it was okay. It was, well, what we're going to talk about today and what we talked about in that previous episode was defunding the police. But in the midst of having that conversation, after we had that conversation, I think a lot, a bunch of us, well, me personally, I was inspired (laughs) by a panel that Beth led about defunding the police that just sparked all a lot of new thought and interest for me. It was a panel um, with a bunch of organizers in Philadelphia about defunding the police. And a lot of the commentators had some interesting questions and observations. And I just, um, I was like, we have to talk about this again, mm-hmm. but better. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay. So we're in this moment where a lot of previously radical ideas are at the forefront of people's minds and conversations right now, including the idea of abolishing and defunding the police. So let's start off by talking about this. How did you guys first encounter the idea of abolishing the police and how did it come across to you at that point? Now that I've had like a round two to answer this question, I'm thinking about like how far back it actually was for me and it sounded insane the first time I heard it. Mm -hmm. Um, even though the person who was telling me this was also relaying to me the, um, the story of the, the move house bombing, um, the particular narrator might've been part of my issue. Although, um, 20 years, man, it doesn't seem that crazy anymore. Mm -hmm. When was this? Um, this was for me, this was probably like 2001 or 2002, Oh, oh wow. wow. That's yeah. really far back. Okay. Yeah. Literally uh, like first, almost 20 years ago. That's nuts. Yeah. The first time I heard the idea of abolishing the police was back in uh 2014 around the time of Ferguson when there was a lot of protests and stuff going on and I was with a bunch of like white activists and one of them expressed a kind of anxiousness about the language of abolishing the police and another one was like well you have to let people express their their feelings and stuff as if and then the the person was like no they actually want to abolish the police um oh so one person felt like this person was like a lofty dreamer and the other person was like no this is a real thing that they're trying to accomplish yeah one person was like they're not serious that's just like that's just a general like a right. thing that they're saying that, that's that just like hyperbole black activists are saying but the other person was like no this is actually part of the platform this is part of the movement like that's a thing that people are trying to do and i was honestly i was more on this I, I don't know if i was on their side but i understood the person who thought this was a crazy idea more because i mean at the time the idea of abolishing the police seemed kind of crazy to me yeah for me i think the first time i heard about I don't know. I actually can't remember the first time I heard about abolishing the police. But what I do remember is the first time that I heard resistance towards cooperating with and working with the police. And that came from our friend and our um, community organizing goddess, Candace McKinley, Mm -hmm. Um, when she led our team circle mobilizing she was talking about a policing event that we that we wanted to host or like a discussion about reform event. Um, and I suggested that we bring in a police officer that I know that's um, 
also a pastor in Philadelphia. And she said, yeah, I'm not going to work alongside with a police officer. And I remember my feelings feeling hurt. I was like, oh, you thought that was a good suggestion. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, And it took me some years, but I'm the same way now. You know, mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not going to work alongside the police. Like, I don't want police to exist. I want resources for community members to exist. So that's the first time I encountered resistance and refusal to work alongside police. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that everybody, one of the reasons, well, I, let's keep this personal. I mean, there are statistics and stuff, obviously, and we, we will talk about those. But all of us started at a place where this idea of abolishing the police seemed a bit ridiculous. How did you come around? I don't know if I would label it as ridiculous, but like scary and foreign feels more feels more appropriate. Like the police are the only thing that I've ever known. They're the only resource that I've ever been able to tap into. I've been taught all my life that I need to trust the police or if something happens to me, you know, even as a kid, you know, if something happens, look for a police officer, right? So the idea that the police officer aren't actually the heroes or the people that keep me safe wasn't necessarily ridiculous, but just was super foreign. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there something that you think made made you embrace the idea? Like, what is it that you think has made you embrace the idea as less foreign? Yeah, I think really being able to tap into my personal experience as a Black woman and seeing how often um, police officers are perpetrators of violence, um, sexual violence sometimes, um, but just like general police brutality, right? Like my sorority sister, Sandra Bland was killed in prison. And I, I honestly believe that she was killed by police in, in, in jail, um, mm-hmm. not prison. Um, and we saw her get tackled by a white male police officer because she wanted to put her cigarette out. Right. I mean, even I think of an experience that I had, and I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, um, I remember at my college's homecoming, maybe in 2011, I I went to a historically black college. Um, Might've been 2010. Um, And I I went to Delaware State University in Dover, Delaware, um, which although the university is black, um, it's the capital of Delaware and it's surrounded by like white folks. So anyways, the police, um, because there were so many people on campus for homecoming, they would call in Dover police to assist the campus police. And I have this very distinct memory of um, the Friday evening of homecoming of walking to my MLK student center um, because it wouldn't be an HBCU if there wasn't an MLK student center. Um, And the police were tackling and punching this young guy like in his face, like brutalizing him. I don't know what happened. I don't know how the escalation got there, but I'll never forget the tenseness in my body that I felt or almost like now I feel like it was like the tenseness of of my ancestral trauma of this is not good. And what do I do? How do I help this person? And how do I keep myself safe? Mm. And I remember this older black lady 
that must have been an alum was there and she got in those cops face and she said, you let that boy go right now. You stop hitting him. You stop hitting him right now. Stop hitting him and was screaming at these white police officers that were brutalizing this kid. Um, and I don't remember if they stopped. I think in my distant memory, I want it to be this glorious moment in which they like stopped because of this black woman's authority. But I can't readily say that. Mm -hmm. um, so I give those examples, specifically that one, to say <sighs> we're told a story about police, but as Black people, when you really think about your interactions with police, you can pretty readily identify where police have not actually kept you safe and where they've truly compromised your safety. And mm -hmm. that's that's where my opinion started to change when I really started to pinpoint my personal experience, not the narrative that I've always been sold. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah, so a lot of people wouldn't would have these negative experiences with the police, mm -hmm. but they wouldn't jump to abolish the police. Mm. They would say, okay. Let's fix the police. Let's fix their use of force policies or let's mm -hmm. do this mm -hmm. or that. Or let's make them live in the cities they police or whatever. Like, what do you think made it so that you went to abolish the police as opposed to let's fix the police? I think knowing the history of police and how they were not established to support me, but rather to further oppress me, like historically, mm -hmm. like the police were established, let's be clear, to catch runaway slaves. So if it was 1848 or whatever, and I was getting gone from a plantation, the police would be wrangling me in and taking me back to my plantation, just in the same way that they wrangled in Sandra Bland, or they wrangled in George Floyd for a $20 counterfeit bill. Mm -hmm. Like they are doing what they have been historically established to do. And upon like recognizing that history and how the police are, like I said, doing exactly what they were meant to do, that's how I came to the conclusion of, oh, the police have never been for me and we need to abolish them and come up with a resource that can actually support me and people that look like me. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. The, yeah. Recognizing the history of it was definitely a part of it for me. The other part mm -hmm. of it for me was just the, the past 10 years. I think I, I feel like t the 2010s were a much more optimistic time when we thought because Obama was president. My like, president is black and my Lambo's blue. <laughs> yeah. Word to Jeezy. <laughs> The, like the the fact that the fact that like Obama could make it made everybody feel a lot more hope about reforming certain institutions, including I think the police. Mm -hmm. And you know that was the time when people started talking about how, how like body cams are going to help or sensitivity training is going to help, mm -hmm. and we can implicit bias training the police department, and things are going to be better that way. But the, the like the truth is. 10 years on, we have found that these reforms are not effective in reducing the effect of police on communities of color, on mm -hmm. affecting the fact that police disproportionately kill black and brown people, mm -hmm. or um, the way they use stop and frisk policies to, to terrorize people. I mean, how many times have we seen the police kill black people on camera? We watched the police choke out Eric Garner, and then they had the nerve to tell us that it wasn't a chokehold. For sure. It's done nothing. Reforms right. have done nothing. For me, I volunteered with the ACLU's Bailey Project for a little while when I was in law school. Basically, back in 2011, the, AC the ACLU sued the Philadelphia Police Department, basically saying, like, the way you use stop from frisk is unconstitutional. You disproportionately stop black people 
And the reason that you stop people is not for legitimate reasons. That is, you're, it's not for what they call reasonable suspicion. The, um, the ACLU won that lawsuit. Uh, and the police were like, we'll do better. We'll start keeping track of things. And that, but you see in the ACLU's report year after year that the police department is still disproportionately stopping black people in these stop and frisk policies. And as somebody who went through those police reports to see if they were constitutionally stopping people for stop and frisk, I'm speaking for myself here, not the ACLU, but I can tell you that what changed is not the fact that the, that the police were stopping people for legitimate reasons. What happened is that the police just got better at doing their paperwork to make it look mm-hmm. like they were stopping people for legitimate reasons. Mm-hmm. Like we're still stopping black and brown people, except now they have the paperwork to say it was legitimate. That's the only difference. And you mm-hmm. see this again and again with all of these reforms. And so what it's left with, what it's left us with is if the institution is so fundamentally corrupt going back to its inception as a slave patrol. What choice do we have as the people except to try something completely different? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we want to get into uh, in this next segment. Uh, But before we do, (laughs) do we, hold on guys. I know we've been saying BIPOC business break. (laughs) Is that corny? I don't, has anyone, have you heard anybody say BIPOC? Is that the right way to say it? Layla Saeed says it. Ah, oh, man. It is super awkward. I don't like it. Why don't you <laughs> so like awkward. it? It's it so chewy. Like a, yeah, but like I would rather, but then again, saying black and indigenous POC is like a lot of words. Mm-hmm. We if can it, ask people what they're hearing. If it's a black, yeah. My preference is that if it's a black business, can we just say black business break? Okay. And if it's But like, what if it's not? I don't know. Then we can be like Asian business break or something. We'll just change. <laughs> the name it doesn't have the segment. same ring. You're right. But BIPOC business break. I don't can know. Black, black and brown business break. Let us know what you guys think. Email <laughs> us. Tell us what you think you would prefer us to call this. I'll let Bethany intro us into this next part and call it what she wants. <laughs> well, now, now I'm paranoid to call it the BIPOC business break, but. Until we figure out what we're going to call it, I'll call it that. So uh, this is a new segment that we have where we highlight a black or brown business um, that's in our area. So today's BIPOC business break is Franny Lou's Porch. Um, Franny Lou's is a cafe owned by Blue Kind, a beautiful and radical black woman working towards black liberation through business ownership. They are a warm space engaging in community activism, cultural awareness, relational business practices. It's a vehicle for advocacy. And most importantly, it's a place of good rest and good food and good coffee. Franny Luz is located in the Frankfurt area of Philadelphia, and they are currently operating out of a side window where you can come up and order or pick up your order in advance if you order online. So, Visit Franny Lou's Porch located at 2400 Coral Street in Philly or visit them online at FrannyLou'sPorch.org. That's F-R-A-N-N-Y-L-O-U-S-P-O-R-C-H.org. So we've talked a little bit about why it is that we all came to the position of defunding the police. The question that people always have when they're encountering this idea for the first time is well if you don't have the police what are you gonna what are you gonna have what are some alternatives to policing well i think what we really need to get out 
to get out there is the idea that policing is very reactive and it is a response from people it is a response to people that are under-resourced, right? So if there was education around um, anti-violence against women, if there was more education about misogyny and patriarchy and how it shows up in our family systems or, or in our government systems, we probably wouldn't need the police to respond um, to violence against women, domestic violence, or rape. If people had adequate housing and access to um, nutritious food, we probably wouldn't need the police to respond um, to acts of violence, which are usually acts of survival, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we really need to emphasize, um, emphasize the point that if we defund the police, those funds need to be reallocated to resources for underserved communities. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I think it also helps to recognize that people are always worried about violent crime when it comes to abolishing policing. But mm -hmm. statistically speaking, I mean, most cities, f violent crimes make up 4% or less of what the police are doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Most of what they're doing are responding to non-emergency things. Um, and then you look at the statistics when it comes to like who the police are killing, for instance, I mean, 50% of the people that put the police murder are disabled people. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's like the reason, and the reason is because, um, a lot of people that the police, uh, are called on have, for instance, mental health issues mm -hmm. and a police officer is not trained in the same way that a, social worker or mm -hmm. another person might be trained to deal with somebody. A police officer is trained to deal with violent crime and the police. And because of that, the police treat, solve their problems the way they, they would solve a violent crime. Yeah. Um, that like sent chills in my body because of the episode in which I called the police on somebody that was obviously having a mental health crisis. Yeah. Like yeah. that, that could have resulted that way. And the, I mean, the sad fact is that for a lot of people, the police are the go-to resource to deal with that. Mm -hmm. um, just like in that situation with your backpack. And I mean, just like in that situation, like part of that is a mentality that needs to be changed. And part of that is because the community resources that could have allowed that to go a different way weren't there. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about defunding the police, we are talking about making sure those other resources are there. And I think we, I mean, we've talked about this before in terms of like the mental health hotline and stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's lots of other resources that are needed. Like as you're talking about mental, um, how the police respond to folks that are struggling with mental illness. Well, that means we need better resources to healthcare. Healthcare shouldn't cost people an arm and a leg. Right. Um, we need better resources to housing. You know what I mean? Like yeah. maybe if he had like a place to go or a safe place to go, he the person that I called the police on wouldn't have been out and about. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, a lot of like a lot of a lot of mental health issues kind of rise out of a place of stress and trauma. Mm -hmm. and, we're, and we're talking Absolutely. about like trying to address those systemic issues before they turn into these um, really stress-induced events. I think we all recognize that that doesn't account for everything, but it certainly takes a lot more into account than most of the systems we have in place at this point do. 
Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about whether to address the fact that people are always going to say, I'm th- Candace did say like abolishing the police doesn't mean there's nobody to call if you, if there is a violent crime. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We can talk about this in a little bit. I'm, I'm taking us off topic. Um, well, actually, you know what? We're right on topic. Yeah. What we're talking about is how do we talk about defunding the police? Because pe- mm-hmm. this is an idea that scares a lot of people. And I'm conscious of the fact that oftentimes when we talk about this, we're always, we always need to kind of calm people down by being like, oh, that doesn't mean that, oh, yeah, oh, 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 you know that commercial that everybody's talking about? Oh, oh my, my God. So I don't know if this commercial is airing outside of Pennsylvania. You might actually have to say something about really? it. Yeah. Like we're okay. swinging. I've seen it on, I've seen it on YouTube. I've seen it on ABC. Okay. So maybe maybe but not much in pennsylvania yeah. yeah so it could just be because it's a pennsylvania thing yeah okay, okay. that's interesting because i assumed that it was happening all over the country so if you guys don't know what we're talking about there mm-hmm. is this um anti-biden trump commercial where um like um an automatic uh, voicemail operator answers and says like hello you've called the police but because of defunding no, you've called one You've called 911. Um, I'm kind of summarizing it because I can't exactly remember it, but essentially it's because of defunding. There's nobody here to answer your call. So if you've been raped, press number one. If somebody's broken into your house, press number two. There's a third thing. And then she ends with saying, if it's any other crime, then we have a five-day waiting list and we'll get back to you. And then she dramatically pauses for a moment and says, Goodbye. And like <laughs> as the as the <laughs> as the telephone operator is is talking, there are these images of people, I think, um, getting into fights with the police. There are mm. protesters, there are protesters with signs that say defund the police, and then like some sort of writing that says Biden supports people that think the police should be defunded. And it's, it's almost like yellow journalism, Mm -hmm. early 1900s type propaganda. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But that's really how people feel. Like, oh shit, I'm gonna have to press a number if I got raped and and nobody's going to help me. Yeah. I, it feels ridiculous for me to have to acknowledge this, but when we're talking about defunding the police, we're not saying that when you call that there will be no one to call if there's a violent crime. Or that there's nobody to protect you. Right. Like that's the problem with the narrative that like, and I said this in the panel on Thursday that Mm -hmm. like this idea that the only way you can be protected, the only resource that we have is the police. And it's like, an abusive relationship where your abuser makes you think that mm-hmm. you have to depend on them and there are no other options. And like, even though that abuser is shitty to you and might beat you up and call you names, you have to take it because you have no other outside source. We have to really remind people that they are empowered and they have the capability of keeping those that they're in community with safe in a better way that the police than the police could because you actually know the people in your community. Yeah. Like Marion Kaba is another community organizing goddess out of New York that talks about how do we respond to particularly men that um uh cause sexual violence or that um but how do we 
hold them accountable and also protect the person that they've caused harm to without utilizing the police. She teaches a course on it. I went to Brooklyn to take it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know. It's very interesting to me that people really think that we have no other option and that like, there's no other option out there. Yeah. I mean, in this in this vein, Beth, I mean, I think one of the things that comes up is the police's role in um, maybe not perpetrating rape, but like the way rape victims are treated, um, the, the backlog of rape kits that that never get mm-hmm. um, like never get inve- so like the rapes that go uninvestigated. So there's there's actually like a re-traumatizing that often takes place when someone reports um, being victimized, being sexually abused, um, and having to go through this separate process, and also never getting any kind of even like what we would consider justice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's also what we're talking about. Like, like we need an alternative to that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot of reasons about how the police are bad at their jobs and how just from a cost benefit analysis perspective, it would be more worth it to put money into other things, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about defunding. But I do mm-hmm. want to talk about this other thing, which I've, which we were, which we touched upon the fact that talking about abolishing or defunding the police is scary for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess. Why do you think is, it's scary? I mean, I, I think it's scary because people, I think it's scary for a lot of people because they're afraid of black and brown people. I think that's number one. And mm-hmm. a lot of white people need to examine their like internalized white supremacy and like what scares them about there being no big guy that could come and wrangle, you know, those scary Negroes mm-hmm. or black girls with long braids like me that tell them that they might be white supremacists. Yeah. I, I, I I'm sure that for a lot of white people, there is, um, uh, I feel like you're even struggling to like think of how do we convince people of this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to transition us into talking about how we convince people. How do we convince people to do this radical thing that we've never seen done before? You know what I mean? Like that's like asking blindfolding me and asking me to jump forward. You know what yes, I mean? Like, right. I don't know. It is absolutely a leap of faith for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the yeah. question that we're forced to well, the question that we're confronting is how do we convince people to take this leap of faith because what they're up against is the same things that always stop mm-hmm. us when we're that always hold us back from having faith which is our, which is our fear which is mm-hmm. our which is holding on to what's familiar you mm-hmm. know like the israelites in the in the wilderness trying to hold mm-hmm. like saying that we should go back to egypt mm-hmm. it's always yeah. that yeah like let's hold on to what we know uh I'd and, rather and, stick to the devil I know than the devil I don't know. I'm so right. terrible at, at idioms. Is that it? It's close enough. No, that's right. That sounds that right. That is right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about that. How do you convince people to take this leap of faith? Especially white people who don't have any, that, who have a, who feel like they have a lot to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't. <laughs> I kind of feel like Trump with this one where he was like, uh, black people or blacks, what do you have to lose? Like, just vote for me, you know? For real. Like, I kind of feel like that for mm-hmm. us. Like, yo, we see how, how often the police have killed us, like, and they don't help our community. So what do we have to lose? Like, it's easy. I feel like it's easier for us mm-hmm. to let go of the police. But I think 
white people are very afraid of um, what's on the other side because they think they have more to lose. But like, I love what um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, it is Cortez. Um, I love what uh, AOC said where she was like, we know what's on that other side of the leap of faith and it looks like suburban communities, right? And that's Mm -hmm. what I mean by white people really need to examine their white supremacy because I think what they're picturing is like Mm -hmm. I said, like this long braid black girl like me coming in their house and like, I don't know, eating their crackers and cheese or something, you know, like I think that's what they're afraid of, but they're not. But, but if you live in the suburbs, you know, when little Tad, like, I don't know, drives his mom's car drunk or something like that. This actually happened in growing up in high school. One of the boys that I went to high school with drove home drunk from a party and crashed right into his parents' garage door and like <laughs> banged their garage door all up. Nobody across the, the street thought to call the cops on him, you know, right. like, and all of us kikied about it. At high school, at school on Monday, you know, right. all of us were like, "Bro, come on!" Like you hit your parents' garage door. There were there, there were resources for that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Tad was able to get his car fixed. There were no cops needed, and his his parents had the resources to also get the garage door fixed after a while. We know what it looks like. We know what the other side looks like when it comes to white people in their communities. We need to have the same faith and value black communities in the same way. There are so many things in this though. Like, I like, I, that, but that's 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 the reality too. It's not that you have not like you white people stand to lose some of their long term um, protections. Like we, there are some systems in this place that uphold whiteness and they are enforced by police. Mm-hmm, absolutely. That's a, that's a reality. White supremacy is backed by the police. We saw that when Amy Cooper started shaking and yes. rattling her fucking voice. Yes. I mean, we like, I remember I had a friend, I was out with a friend one time and she got trashed, a white woman. And um, she started screaming at another one of our coworkers. And my first thought instantly was, fuck, white people are going to call the police and they're going to come up to me first. Yeah. Like mm. white people are protected by the police. Yes. And their whiteness is protected by the police. I am not. So like, yeah, white people have their whole identities and their existence and their power to lose. Yeah. And I think as we're talking about it, we have to convince white people that that they're white, right? And that there are things that come with their whiteness yeah. um, that come at the detriment of black people. And we have to convince them of that and how yeah. harmful that is. Absolutely. And to an, to an extent, I'm not interested in um, arguing with white people about my humanity and my existence and how it is so compromised by the police. Like, I'm really, I'm sick of that. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, I think to a certain extent, the work of trying to convince white people that Black Lives Matter lies on the shoulders of other white people mm-hmm. who can yeah. have that conversation without putting their humanity at risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are Black people who are afraid of losing the police as well. Yes. Yeah. Sure. So I do want to talk about that. I mean, 
Beth, how does your mom feel about abolishing the police? I don't know. I don't think I've ever talked to her about but it. I am she curious about that. Can we call I'll Greta? Ask her. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about that uh, just because, her. like, uh, I mean, we're talking about the fact that, that that the police as an institution reinforce and are rooted in white supremacy, and that's all well and good. And I think that um, once you've been radicalized, I think you do have to, I mean, you, the, 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 uh, that's an inescapable fact. But what we're talking about here is institutional change that's going to require a lot of people to come on board. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, like, Black people are not a monolith. Um, and that there are a lot of people who are limited in what they can imagine. And, mm-hmm. and what we're talking mm-hmm. about is how do we get them to do that? And I think part of it is educating or making people realize how deeply ingrained white supremacy is in, in the system and the history and how the police is tangled up in that. Mm-hmm. And also just highlighting the fact that the police as an institution that we're dumping billions of dollars in. I mean, more than the defense budgets of multiple countries are not worth the money that we're putting in, Mm -hmm. in terms of the benefit they provide to our communities. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the heart of it here is what we keep running up against, a lack of faith, basically an attitude rooted in fear. Mm Mm-hmm like white people being afraid of black and brown people from, you know, taking their seltzer. Right. Um, (laughs) What we're talking about is people in communities of color for whom like the police is the only response to violent crime or emergency response that they have ever known. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. The only semblance of hope, right? Like we're asking people to have faith to trust something else when this entity and the narrative connected to this entity is their only semblance of that hope. Right. Right. And I mean, because of that, a lot of times in the the past 20 years, uh, the black communities or black politicians have voted for increases in police budgets or Mm -hmm. for more police presence and Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Uh, So how, I guess, how does scripture help us imagine something beyond what we've seen is, I guess, my question. How do we cultivate that kind of prophetic imagination? Mm-hmm. I mean, what helps you guys do that? I always like the way Paul, and I've done my Eddie Murphy Paul impression before, so I won't do it. <laughs> but I in, always enjoy the energy and the confidence with which Paul speaks to a prophetic future. Like, I think it's Philemon where he... Is he, I was about to say, Paul's emailing Philemon. (laughs) (laughs) ApostlePaul122 at Uh (laughs) gmail.com. I like how Philemon or how Paul writes to Philemon with this confidence of, hey, I met your slave. Uh Oh, my goodness. Um, So he's about to be free make a bed for him and make sure you make a bed for me too, boo. Cause we're coming home. Like he just speaks to it in this, this really radical thing, right? Like this idea that you wouldn't punish this servant for screwing you over by leaving. No, like this person's a Christian now he's a brother. And I'm confident in the fact that you're going to like gussy up your crib, make sure you pull out the, the pullout couch for him and then put me on the futon upstairs. Mm-hmm. Talk to you later. TTYL. Like, I love <laughs> the confidence that Paul has in that. Man. And, like, that encourages me and sometimes even gets me in trouble. Like, the spiciness and confidence with which I speak to things. 
-hmm. But I'm just like, no, somebody needs to have this like confident, prophetic voice of this is what we need to do. I feel God charging us to this new creation and I'm going to speak to it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I looked, I mean, like the prophets are like all over justice in the, in the old Mm -hmm. Testament. Um, And there's like, there's two narratives that are, that are pretty typical in, in their, in the, in the, the prophets are doing one of two things. Typically they're like, things are good in, in Israel and like the people are, the people are happy. So they start going hog wild and they start um, Mm -hmm. abusing their privilege and their people. And that's when the prophets rise up and say, things are about to get terrible because you're not taking care of the oppressed. Um, Mm -hmm. Or they're working on rebuilding their, um, their kinship after it's been destroyed in their times in exile. Um, so there's there's like there's like a picture on each side of that fence that really just has to do with um, oppressing people and being oppressed, and God's response to both. Mm-hmm. And it's always for the oppressed, mm-hmm. no matter who they are. I just breezed over Nehemiah today, and and Nehemiah is the story of of this of this time of rebuilding. Um, Nehemiah is actually literally rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in a time when he himself is in exile, as well as like most of his countrymen. There's a few people left. Um, as they're rebuilding, he like has to, he, has, he like stops in the middle of the story and has to address the fact that like his, like the nobles uh, among the Jews are like still selling people out into exile. And so like they have to like pull their money together, pull everybody back in. Um, at the like once they've built the the walls and like restored everybody from exile, they collectively repent. Mm. Like I think that's a prophetic view of what could be possible too. Like and at some point in this narrative, we have to to account for the damage we've done. Yeah, I like the story from Nehemiah. The Jews have been in captivity in Babylon, and they're longing for their home. And then all of a sudden. They, they get it back and they're able to go back and start rebuilding. Like that pattern of things is repeatedly in scripture is what inspires me. Like the Israelites are, 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 in, are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And Moses says to God in the burning bush, haven't you heard their suffering? And God says, I have, I have heard their suffering and I'm sending you. You know, this idea that like this thing has been like, we're in this thing so long. And then all of a sudden God acts uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and change starts happening and we can, um, you know, and Moses, it doesn't go in front of Pharaoh and he's like, give, give my people a fair wage, you know, or something. He doesn't stay like, start paying the Israelites. This is let my people go. Mm-hmm. You know, he goes straight from slavery to freedom. Mm-hmm. He has that kind of, uh, that radical kind of vision exactly yeah. that radical vision to demand freedom from the mm-hmm. beginning which i think is something that we need to learn to do because my impulse is always like oh what's the next politically possible step that mm-hmm. we that 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 right. will help us get closer to the goal but i think we always need people out there I, and especially people of faith who have the prophetic vision and have the courage and I, I, we keep saying faith but have the faith to say let my people go to say abolish right the police abolish ice to mm-hmm. say that a better world is possible right now. God's going to do it. I might cut this out, but what inspires me about that story, I've just been rereading Exodus. Um, after the firstborn of Egypt are all dead because of the plague, 
but after that, after that happens, the Israelites are getting ready to leave because Pharaoh is like, all right, fine, get out. There's a moment where, let me try to find the verse. Um, what the Bible says is, the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Like, imagine that your slave walks up to you and is like, uh, you know the God that sent 10 plagues against you and killed your firstborn? That God wants you to give me all of your silver and gold uh, <laughs> and for me to leave this country. Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> and the Israel and the Egyptians were favorably disposed toward the Israelites, which, like, of course, you're like, oh yeah, take take this, take everything, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Put in a good word for me, and uh, <laughs> good luck to you. Like that kind of reversal is the kind of is the kind of liberation that I think God promises us and that we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. What? Well, let's. Uh, are we okay with that segment? We can move on. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. So we like to end each episode by talking about what we're into this week. Uh, Chris, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, there's a there's a new series on Netflix called Basketball or Nothing. Um, it 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 follows a high school basketball team on a Navajo reservation, the Chinle Wildcats. Um, I'm in episode four right now. It's like I I don't really want people to tell me how it ends, but I am really enjoying watching their their, their rise. Um, super great and a lot of basketball, which I haven't watched in a while, and I really love. Awesome. I am into a documentary from ESPN about Bruce Lee called Be Water. Uh, It came out about a month or so ago. It does a great job of talking about Bruce Lee, but not just talking about Bruce Lee, but also putting him in an Asian American context Hmm. Um, and talking about like his, like the history of Chinese immigration and also how Bruce Lee had to go up against racist Hollywood and how ultimately like Hollywood was so racist that he just went back to Hong Kong to make movies. And that's when he started to get really popular. Um, it's, it's just an amazing documentary about this like really interesting person. Uh, so I really recommend it. I thought it was good. Nice. And I'm still into hood feminism by Mickey Kindle, which is a book that talks about, Um, the intersections of women that are from predominantly black and brown impoverished communities and the mainstream feminist movement and how often so many things that affect the quote unquote hood are really feminist issues, but white feminists don't honor or see that intersectionality. Um, And the way Mickey Kendall talks about issues that black girls face and how it's so often not acknowledged to be an issue for Black women is really interesting. Um, She talks about having an eating disorder um, and um, Black girls struggling with eating disorders. And because our bodies are expected to be fuller um, or our families expect that our bot that will have big butts or hips or whatever, that oftentimes eating disorders are not really recognized. Um, and I, I listened to my books. I've said this before, um, but the chapter entitled black girls have eating disorders too came on while I was doing my makeup. But when I heard black girls have eating disorders too, I yelled at my phone, not today. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not prepared. I have to mentally prepare to listen to this, but, um, 
yeah, it was really good. So I'm super into Mickey Kendall um, hood mm. feminism. Awesome. Special thanks to Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager, and also to Jared Selby, who does our theme song. And if you are interested in talking to us about your intersections of race and faith, please be sure to write us at circlemobilizing at gmail.com. So with that, that's another episode down and stay black, little mermaid.